kind of sad to see this come to an end. Um, I just love being with you guys. And the conversations I've had with some of you have come up and said, hey, can we talk? And then, wow, so good. So good. I just see God doing so much in so many hearts. And he's touched my life through so many of you as I've heard your story. And uh, thank you for being so vulnerable to just to share. Those of you who come up and share with Tracy and I your journey and your story, and we're just honored by that. Um, mm, this worship tonight. You know how rare live worship is these days? I mean, it's just really rare to get into a room filled with people who are just singing praise the Lord, oh my soul. Do you know every appetite you have for God is a mirror of an appetite he has for you? Yeah. You're made in his image and likeness, and the Bible says he holds everything together, as we talked about this morning, by the power of his word, and he rejoices over you with singing, so you're held together literally by the worship of God as he begins just to sing over you. In him you live and move and have your being. In, in his song you and I live and move and have our being. And tonight as you're singing, why are we even singing praises to God? All we're doing is just reflecting back to him what he's been doing over us since the foundation of the world. We just took a few minutes tonight to, from our being, reflect back to him what he's been doing over us. What has he been singing over your life? What are the lyrics to the song that he's been singing over your life? I tell you, it's beautiful. It's beautiful and it's glorious. And there may be some low notes and some missed notes somewhere along the way in your life. I'm gonna tell you how this thing works. This is just kind of a funny analogy, but this is kind of the way that I see it. Uh, if, you've ever, if you've ever tried to make a song on your computer, if you have like an Apple computer, you have this program called GarageBand, and, and basically you can put a vocal track, and then you can put a guitar track, you can put a drum track, you can put a bass track, you put all these different tracks in, and then you, you create a song out of all these tracks. And, and the very first time you try to do it, it's called a rough demo. And there's all kinds of pitchy parts and broken guitar strings. And it's just, it's kind of a mess. But somewhere in there, there's a song. And the life that we're living right now is kind of like, it's kind of like, you didn't sign up for this, by the way. You didn't ask to be born. You didn't ask to be here. And here you are. You got thrust into this life. And it's almost like you got put in the studio and boom, record. And the rough demo is happening, whether you like it or not. And a rough demo usually sounds, well, rough, until it gets into the hands of someone called a master. When the master gets a hold of it, it's interesting because he goes back in the demo and he goes, you know what, let's re-record that section. Let's take that part out and re-record that. That was a little rough. And then let's put through all kinds of blends and, and let's put effects on it. And, and here's the cool thing. And I used to work for a record company. I used to watch the bands that would come into the studio after the master had gotten a hold of their rough demo. And they'd sit down and listen to their mastered recording and their eyes would get wide and their mouths would open and they'd look at each other and go, wow, that's us? He made us sound amazing. Because in the hands of the master, a rough demo turns into a work of art. 
and you and I are living a rough demo. And some of you can look back, at way back in the, in the piece of music that has been your life, and you can look at parts where you broke a guitar string, you fired a member of the band, the drum kit fell over, everything went wrong, and the recording just kept going. And you're like, man, I can't resurrect this song for anything. Can I tell you what heaven is? See, we have a God who's not bound by time. He has the ability to redeem every moment that you've ever lived. If he doesn't, then he is not the Lord of the time that he invented. That would make time stronger than the God that invented it. But see, God can make more time. Don't ever worry about the time you've wasted. God can make more. He's really good at that. Okay? And he can accomplish more. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, yeah. Woo. He can, accomplish, he can accomplish more in one redeemed minute than you can try to redeem in a lifetime, okay? That's just the way he can do. So here's the thing. I think this is the amazing part about heaven. I think heaven is when you and I get to listen to our mastered recording, where we get to sit down in the studio with the master, and he goes, you want to hear the song? Yeah, not really. I kind of like to not hear this one section, really. Oh, seriously, no, I, I want to I play your song. See, because he's not bound by time. He can move in any direction he wants. And I think we get to sit and listen to the song of our life. And it'll be like those bands in the studio that with wide eyes and jaws just dropped, looking at each other going, he made us sound amazing. I think heaven is you getting to actually experience the masterpiece of the song of your life as it blends with the voice of a God who's been singing over you since before the foundation of the world. And I think that's one of the things that's going to make it so much fun to be there and be in the presence of the Lord. Mm, so good. I just think God's really good. I, I, I just, I think he's offensively good. He's better than you think, and you can't imagine him better than he is. Just the way it is. All right, I got a few things uh, in the back there that are left. You guys, like, bought out almost everything. Thanks for that. I don't know what I'm going to do with the church on Sunday, but that's cool. No, that's good. Thank you guys so much. Um, we've got a few of these uh, uh, thumb drives back there that are left. One of them is a 24-hour teaching on identity. I mentioned this briefly last night. It's called Project 24. And uh, it has to do with the idea that it's like God told Jeremiah, I knew you before I formed you. So that means that God knew you before you knew you could be known. So then you got to ask the question, what did he know? Because what he knew is who you are. So you have one assignment in this life, as I said last night, and that is to find out what God believes about you and agree with that. That's it. Because what he believes about you is the truth about who you really are. That's Project 24. It's 24 hours of teaching back there on kind of like that. So uh, if after 24 hours of that, you still don't know who you are, have Pastor Clark lay hands on you and cast a demon out of you or something. <laughs> Speaking of demons, this is a teaching on spiritual warfare. Walking in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, I like to call it spiritual joy fair because you have way more fun, you get way more done because demons hate joy. Yeah. <laughs> A friend of mine back in Austin years ago, he was on his uh, deliverance ministry team at his church. His name was Will, and uh, Will calls me up one day and goes, Bill, I had the craziest experience. 
So what happened? He goes, I was on my way to an appointment. It was a really important appointment. I'm on my way there, and I get a call that, uh, that, that this guy needs uh, deliverance. And so I go up to the church, and this guy's flopping around on the floor like a fish on a dock. And, and he goes, and, and the guys are yelling. And, of course, when demons start manifesting, people, like, turn up the volume, right? And he's like, usually things like this can take hours. And he goes, uh, I go, Lord, I don't have this much time. And he said, I heard the Holy Spirit say, you want to speed this up? And he says, yes. He said, the Holy Spirit looks at him and says, says to his heart, laugh over this man. <laughs> laugh over this guy. I said, Will, did you really do that? And he goes, yeah. I got down right by his, right by his chest and I went, ha, 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 ha. I said, what happened? He goes, man, he got really angry. <laughs> I said, what'd you do? He says, I just kept laughing. <laughs> and he said, and pretty soon the guy just goes, wow, and laid there totally still, and he was free. I said, Will, how long did that take? And he goes, about a minute. <laughs> he goes, I got a revelation, Bill. Demons don't like joy very much. It's awesome. That's all 12 hours in a nutshell. There you go. That'll save you a lot of time and money. Uh, <laughs> Everything you want to know about angels and demons from a new covenant perspective is on there. And then the last one is this little little one uh, with a smiley face on it. And this is 10 hours of teaching on the book of Revelation from a new covenant perspective. And the first time a friend of mine uh, named Caleb heard this, he goes, dude, he says, I had these, used to have these in boxes. And he goes, put them in little plastic bags. And just for that Revelation one, he said, he said man, that thing's dangerous. He goes, just put a happy face on it. And I said, why? And he goes, because that's exactly the container I used to buy my drugs in. <laughs> oh, some of you are like nodding, like you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Revelation's not a scary book. Revelation may be the happiest book in the Bible. Revelation is a handbook for how to walk in victory over darkness in every generation. It's true. Do you know there's more than one beast in the book of Revelation? And he's actually showed up in the Bible before. Do you know if there's more than one antichrist? John said there's a lot of them, and many of them have already gone out into the world. Hey, I guarantee you've met a few. The word antichrist actually doesn't mean opposed to Christ. The word anti is a fascinating Greek word that doesn't mean opposed to. It simply means instead of. The antichrist spirit is kind of hard to, to see because he's, he's not forcefully or violently opposed to Christ. He can just take Christ and say, you know what? Yeah, we like Jesus, but we're going to go ahead and set him aside for just a second to focus on something else for right now. Which is why the most, most common place you meet the Antichrist spirit is in church. Oh, it got quiet. <laughs> so that's fun. That's back there. Revelation is such a great book. Actually, it's, it's super, super happy. The entire thing is a revelation of the victory of Christ. And the mystery of the gospel is Christ in you, the hope of glory. One more thing I'm going to mention, and, uh, and that is uh, there's a card back there. It's called the Quantum Preaching Master Class. And some years ago, a young friend of mine said, would you do a public speaking class? And so I decided to look for other people out there that were doing public speaking classes from a New Covenant spirit-filled perspective, and I couldn't find any. And so we created a class that's all about the sound that we've been talking about this week. And so if you have a call on your life to preach the gospel, this would be something I encourage you to sign up for. It's 30 lessons. You can do it at your own pace. And if you put in the promo code VIP in all caps, it'll knock a bunch of money off that. So that's fun. And that's back there. Okay. Hey, Crystal, will you help me out?
just prophetically give these away, will you? Yeah, just ask God who you're supposed to give them to. Like, who needs them the most? I don't know. If she gives you the one on deliverance, it doesn't mean you have a demon, okay? <laughs> go ahead. Just feel free just to want to do it. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. All right. Uh, once you take and open your Bibles, if you would tonight, to the Gospel of John, I want to talk a little bit, finish up this idea of the sound and just another aspect of this thing of the sound of God. Once you go to John chapter 15, open your Bibles, your iPhones, whatever you're reading on tonight, and John chapter 15, Jesus himself, being the word made flesh and dwelling among us, gives three reasons why he's talking. He's come to the end of his ministry now, and he's actually going to wander around with his disciples, going to walk down through the Kidron Valley, down through the, the grapes and the vines, talk about abiding, talk about being in him and being in us and us being in him and being united together. And as he, as he talks, he's going to start giving some reasons for why he's talking. So he's going to say things, three times he's going to say this phrase, these things I have spoken unto you so that. This is Jesus, this is God, the Word made flesh in Christ revealing something really beautiful. This is the reason that sound is coming out of my mouth. In other words, this is what I'm imparting to you. And the first one is in John chapter 15 and verse 11. He says this, These things I have spoken unto you, so my joy might remain in you, and your joy might be full. Ponder that with me for just a moment. The idea of fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. Some of you maybe heard me talk about this, but years ago, Tracy and I used to live in Hawaii, and I'm standing in Walmart, and I'm pondering joy, and the lady in front of me starts giggling out of nowhere, <laughs> and I'm thinking, what is that? Because all I'm thinking about is fullness of joy, and as I continue meditating on this idea of have I experienced the fullness of joy, she starts laughing more and more, belly laughing. Next thing you know, she turns around, looks at me, and goes, I have no idea what's funny. And I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, pay attention, what you meditate on, others will manifest around you. As you meditate on my joy, you start releasing what you're meditating on, what you give your thoughts to, what you give your heart to, what you give your mind to. The joy of the Lord is your strength, and in the presence of the Lord, there's fullness of joy. The strength that comes from the presence of the Lord is the joy that literally carried Jesus through the cross. And as I'm standing there in that Walmart, I suddenly have this revelation, it really matters what you think about. Paul said it like this. He says, uh, he, he goes, uh, whatever things are true, honest, just, lovely, good report, virtuous, praiseworthy, think on these things. Why does he command us what to think on? Because you have control over this. God's not going to force you to think anything. Let me say it like this. You personally have no power to change your heart. You can't change your heart. How about this? God's not going to change your mind. But if you'll change your mind, God will change your heart. If you'll change your thoughts, God will change your heart. 
You can't change your heart, and God won't change your mind. But if you will surrender your mind to think the thoughts of God, then God will start beginning to transform and work upon your heart. When I give myself over to meditate on the presence of the Lord, the presence of the Lord brings a fullness of joy that ultimately produces strength in my life. Jesus is saying, these things I've spoken unto you so that my joy might remain in you. In other words, I wanna speak a sound and if you understand what is coming out of my mouth, you would understand I'm hooking you up to an IV drip of heaven's joy. I am infusing you with my joy, not just any joy, my joy. He says that my joy might remain in you and your joy might be full. Two joys he talks about here, his and yours. You know what he wants them to do? Hang out together and have a party. That's the deal. He's like, I want my joy to remain in you so that your joy might be full. I want your joy and my joy to so be entwined that it's hard to figure out where one begins and the other ends. This is why sound is coming out of my mouth. It's really interesting when he says this because later on in John 16, he's actually going to look at these people and go, hey guys, as I'm talking to you, here's something I'm noticing. Sorrow is filling your heart. In other words, as I'm speaking, trying to release joy, you're actually having a completely different response. See, for some reason, we think that if God shows up and starts talking to us, we will have the automatic right response. And that's not true. To position your heart to receive from God means that you become pliable to align with his mind, with his heart, with his spirit, to align your spirit with his. I was talking to somebody this evening, and we were kind of touching a little bit on this, talking about you know, the difference between our standard of healing and Jesus' standard. Jesus' standard was way up here. Every person who came to Jesus got healed. My standard, somewhere down here. Small percentage that come to me get healed. So there's this gap that we've got between our standard and Jesus' standard. Now the challenge I have in this moment is what do I do with this gap? The first thing I have to do is acknowledge it exists. But the second thing is I got a choice. I can do what a lot of people do, and that is I can bring the standard of Jesus down, explaining it away, bringing it down until it matches my current level of experience. And I think that's where we get a lot of lousy theology. That's where we allow faith to actually go away and unbelief to come in and become our lifestyle. Or I can do this. I can leave the standard of Jesus right where it is and recognize that something needs to change and it's not him. Somewhere there needs to be a transformation. So God, whatever I have to do to align with you, whatever you need for me to do in order to somehow shape, change my thought process to match more closely with what you believe, how, however this gap closes, it's not gonna close this way, it's gotta close this way. I've gotta go up, he's not coming down. So aligning with his joy is one of the first ways that you and I experience the strength of God. The second thing that Jesus says here is in verse 16, uh, excuse me, chapter 16, verse one. It says, uh, these things I've spoken unto you so that you might be kept from stumbling. That's kind of cool. Think about that. 
These things I've spoken to you so that you might be kept from stumbling. That's staying free from sin. That's absolutely staying pure and righteous and holy before God. In other words, sound is coming out of my mouth so that you would keep free from stumbling. Now, if I look at that, then what I do is I make a list of rules, all the things that Jesus ever said, and then I work really, really hard to try to keep all the rules so that I keep myself free from stumbling because that's what it seems like he's saying, except here's the deal. He's already told us how we get free, and it's in John chapter 15 and verse 3. He's wandering along through the Kidron Valley, and he's talking about abiding, and he's got the grapes on both sides, and the disciples are following after him, and, and he says this phrase in John 15, 3. Now you are clean through the word that I have spoken unto you. Now, Drew, if you and I are two of the 12 disciples and we're wandering along, we're maybe taking up the end of the line and we're hearing about every other word and all of a sudden he turns and goes, now you're clean through the word that I've spoken unto you. I might go, hey, Drew, hey, uh, I think I missed something. What? Yeah, he just said we're clean. How do we get clean? Excuse me, Jesus, I think we missed an action point. Uh, we didn't quite catch that. You said something. Yeah, you're clean. How, how, how did that happen? Did, we didn't do anything. Yeah, no, it, here's the way it works. I was talking, you're here. What? Yeah, sounds coming out of my mouth. You're in the room, now you're clean. So I'm clean just because you said so? These things I've spoken so that you might be kept from stumbling. How do you keep from stumbling? Keep your ears open to the word of the Lord. Keep your ears open to the word of the Lord. Stumbling, stumbling isn't always sin issues. Stumbling is the condition we find ourselves in when we close our ears off to the word of the Lord and we start coming up with our own plans and our own ideas. You wanna know how to burn out in ministry? Come up with your own ideas independent of God. You get to be the fuel for your own vision. And when you're the fuel, you'll burn out. But when it's his vision and his grace and his idea, how many of you know he's the fuel and you won't burn out? As a matter of fact, God will actually lead you to do things that if others tried to mimic them, it would kill them dead. But when God calls you, he will give you a grace to do something that seems so natural to you, it doesn't seem special at all. Some of you have like a gift, a talent to sing, and it's so easy for you to open your mouth and great sound comes out. Congratulations. The rest of us aren't quite that fortunate, okay? But for you who have that grace and that talent and it's as easy as breathing, it seems to you like everybody should be able to do this because it comes so naturally to you. You know what that is? It's a grace on your life. For art, for computers, for invention, for design, for math, for, you know, whatever. The stuff that comes easiest to you oftentimes is a supernatural grace of God upon your life that actually is telling you this is what I've graced you and called you to do. But oftentimes it's not enough of a challenge for us, so we'll stretch out into areas that we have no business being in and kill ourselves in the process and blame God. 
Find the thing that's easy to do is breathing that brings you so much joy and pleasure that if other people tried to do, it would just absolutely wear them out. But to you, it's no big deal. What are you doing? Then you're operating in the grace that God's given you. And you'll do things that are just a pleasure. People say, don't you just get tired preaching? You want to go and take a break? No, because if I took a break, I wouldn't be speaking and preaching the gospel. This is not work to me. I tried not to do this for years because it came so easy. I thought everybody could do it. And then suddenly I began to realize, oh, whenever I try to do something else, I wear out. I need major vacations. But when I do this, every day is like a vacation to me. At least to my spirit, it's rejuvenating. It's actually harder for me to do nothing. It's weird. I don't know why that is, except that there's a grace on what God has called you to do. Follow the grace on your life. That's how you keep free from stumbling. Last one is this. It's in John chapter 16, verse 33, and I talked about this just briefly last night. He says, these things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So just to repeat from last night so you don't forget, these things I've spoken so that you may have peace. Peace is a person. It's the person of Christ inhabiting our life. He says, in this world you will have future tense trouble. Be of good cheer. I have, past tense, overcome the world. What is he saying? I've already been in your future, and I've already equipped you with everything necessary to face every wall, every challenge, every obstacle, every difficulty that you could ever possibly face. It's not that he's just going to take the difficulty out of the way. It's that he has placed a strength in you that's stronger than anything that could come against you, and he wants you to know how strong you actually are. He's not causing the trouble. He's not causing the difficulty. That's an enemy that seeks to steal and kill and destroy. But he who is in you is greater than he who's in that obstacle. And it's a big deal that you discover the greatness of God that's actually been deposited within you. So when he says, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. He's saying, you have reason to rejoice when you see obstacles coming or not. Either way, you're going to be victorious. This is how you walk in victory. So if you go to, and you don't have to do this unless you're just taking notes. If you go to Romans 14, verse 17, you'll see that Paul writes there a definition, a common definition that we use for the kingdom of God. And he simply says this, that the kingdom of God is not just a matter of eating or drinking. It is defined as righteousness, peace, and joy. Say those with me. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. So tonight, as we were honoring the Holy Spirit, just by letting that prayer language go forth, what were we doing? We're releasing a sound. As we're releasing a sound, what are we releasing? Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. What does Jesus say three times? I'm releasing over you my joy, my righteousness, so you'd be kept from stumbling, and my peace. So Jesus essentially has just told us here in John 15 and 16, every time I open my mouth to speak, I'm releasing the kingdom of God. Now, the Bible says, as he is, 1 John 4, 17, as he is, so are we in this world. 
as he releases through his sound, spirit, and life, so you and I are commissioned to do the exact same thing. We release spirit and life. What do we do every time we open our mouth to speak, to declare, to release the goodness of God? We are actually bringing the kingdom here into this realm. I want you to take and jump in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Heavily in the scriptures tonight. Revelation chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 20. I mentioned this verse last night, but I want to launch from this verse into a place I just want to take you. I just want to tell you a story here. And, I, and this story, I hope, is going to encourage you to go into Revelation 3, 4, and 5 and spend some time in there because there's a richness of your identity that's revealed in here that's so powerful. you got to see it. It's one of my favorite revelations in the whole world. God is consistently, by the way, he's teaching me a little bit about, when I talk about powerful and, and, and the greatness of God in us, God is consistently teaching me how powerful we are, how much authority we actually have. As a matter of fact, anytime I start to complain about anything going on in the world, I, I'm suddenly drawn back to an element of my own spiritual life where I realize I've not stewarded it well in the past and I'm reaping the benefits of it now. Let me explain. That sounds complicated, but I'll, I'll give you an example. One day, I get really frustrated about masks. Last year, you know, we got masks. I, I, I got to be on the planes a lot, so I wear these things a ton. I got so many masks. I just, I'm, I'm looking for the one that feels like wearing underwear on your face. I want it more, more, so comfortable that, you know what I'm talking about. It's like, I don't care if it works or not. It's probably, you know, like mosquitoes in a chain link fence. But you got to wear these things when you're on a plane, right? So I'm wearing this mask one day, and I'm getting frustrated. And I'm, I'm just, I'm kind of grumbling to God about this thing. Like, when is the world going to go back to the way it was? I hate these masks. And I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, Bill, why are you so upset about masks? You've been wearing them for years. Yeah, that's what I did too. Oh. And suddenly I had this picture of the sign that's been on almost every church in the country over the last year. Must have mask to enter. And I realized, oh my goodness, that sign's been hanging there in the spirit for a long time on a lot of church doors. Subconsciously, most people, when they come to church, listen, you could have had the worst day of your life. You could have been fighting with your wife, fighting with your kids, and, and everything's going wrong, just lost your job, got a bad doctor's diagnosis. You get to the door of the church, and the others are like, hey, how you doing? And you're like, blessed and highly favored. <laughs> a liar. <laughs> Don't come to church to get vulnerable. We come to church to let everybody know we all got it together. What's wrong with you? I got it together. I know what's going on. You want to get vulnerable, go to a bar. <laughs> you walk in there, and you'll see the pastor of the place. That's the guy behind the counter. He knows everybody's issues. And he just listens. And in their mind... Man, he's the one safe place in this town. But people don't get vulnerable in church. Why? Because we're scared to death of the judgment of other believers. Scared to death of it. And I realized, oh my goodness, a spiritually masked culture is what we've been. 
and now what we're seeing is a physically masked world. What's happening in the physical is a, is a, is a byproduct of what we have allowed in the spirit for years. I love this place. I mean, I, I walk in here, and uh, first night I walk in here, I, I mean, kids are, kids are, you know, like doing WWE over here and like getting stitches and stuff, like going to the urgent care because we have to get some stitches. You know, it's like, oh, but blessed God, we're just glad to be here. And I'm like, wow, this is legit and genuine. This is real. The food's great. People are sharing meals and laughs and hugs all the way around. I'm like, hey, you, I don't know if you guys understand how rare this fellowship is. You got to understand, it's not everything is like this. A lot of churches I go into, I'm like, oh yeah, there's spiritual masks everywhere in here. And oftentimes altar services are where people come to take the masks off. That's why we do these altar call things. But I feel like this entire body is just one big altar call of vulnerability. I feel like you're kind of in a safe place here. I, I can't tell you how many people have come up to me and go, can I just share my story with you? And I'm sitting there listening to total strangers tell me the things that have gone on in their life as if we were in a bar. And I'm like, hey, this is the way church ought to be. This is a, a place where you can be safe to be vulnerable. Those of you who are pastors and leaders, keep your house vulnerable and keep it safe. And one day I'm, 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 I get over the mask thing and I got you know, spanked a little by God for that. And uh, God dealt with my heart. And then I looked around and I saw all this stuff called cancel culture. Hashtag cancel culture. Canceled. And I thought, hey, that's not cool. What, what gives the world the right to judge anything? That's not what they get to do. That's our job. Suddenly I had this realization. Oh, we invented cancel culture. We did. And I thought about all the people down through the years that have messed up, fallen ministers that have just tanked their lives that I suddenly canceled out of my mind saying, I can't, I can't hear from them, I can't receive them anymore. Can I tell you something really interesting? God has a habit of anointing really flawed people. He does. I know I'm shooting myself in the foot here, but I'm just admitting to you, God has a habit of anointing really flawed people. It's not a, it's not a testimony to their character as much as it's a testimony to his grace. God spoke to Balaam, prophet, through an ass. That's King James. I got news for you. He's been using them ever since. <laughs> so when you do give a word and God speaks through you, don't, don't go out and build a website and print business cards and think so highly of yourself. God can use anybody he wants. It's a testimony to his grace. He keeps choosing flawed individuals, I think, to see how we'll respond. Yeah, if he picked perfect people to anoint, like nobody in the Bible, if he picked perfect people to anoint, then we would idolize and put these people up on a pedestal. And I don't know about you, but in the last year, I think, I think we've learned a big lesson about the idea that God loves human leadership and he honors human leadership and he blesses human leadership, but he is absolutely against human idolatry. 
And I don't care if it's a pastor, a prophet, or a politician, even if God has anointed that person, the minute that we move them from honor to idolatry, we've just numbered their days. Because throughout the scriptures and even into the new covenant, God is firmly committed to taking down everything we turn into an idol. Just is. Just not against, not, not into idolatry. He's really not. You say, how do we move a person from honor to idolatry when a person is no longer correctable? If a person can't be confronted and corrected, they can't be trusted either. And that's the point, when a person can do no wrong. When they can't be confronted, when they can't be corrected, now we've moved them from a place of honor to a place of idolatry, and now we're in trouble. God is teaching us the value of human leadership. He's teaching us the value of honoring people without turning them into idols. It's not just people that are idols. Idolatry is everywhere these days. I'm not talking about celebrity culture. Understand, idolatry is anytime you get your needs met by something that cannot love you. That's why every addiction that everybody ever faces, essentially, it's an idol. Addiction, modern-day addiction is idolatry. It's what happens when we become so rooted into something that it's latched onto our lives and we get our needs met by something that has no ability to love us. And ultimately, God is the only, the only source of our love, joy, peace, righteousness, the fullness of the kingdom comes from him. And we allow him in our lives, and we allow him to come into our lives, there's no transaction about it. It's a full-on transformation. He comes in to absolutely change everything. Cancel culture, that was the one that really, that tripped me up. But there was one that was bigger, bigger than masks, bigger than cancel culture. I was with a friend one day, and this is after I'd been doing some youth meetings uh, down in South Florida, and I'm sitting with a dear friend who's a father in the faith, and I say to him, hey, Man, I don't get it. It seems like the next generation is just dead to the things of God. And he looked at me, smile left his face, and he just looked at me so intense. And he goes, you remember when Jesus was walking along one day and a woman came up behind him and grabbed the hem of his garment? I said, yeah, I remember that. He said, do you remember where, she was, where, where Jesus was going when that story happened? I hadn't really thought too much about it, and I thought about it, and I realized, yeah, he was on his way to the home of a guy named Jairus to heal his daughter. My friend says, yeah, he was actually on his way to bring a supernatural touch to the next generation. But he couldn't get there because he was detained by somebody from the older generation who had issues in their blood. I said, all right, keep going. He goes, yeah, he turns and he deals with the issues. He calls her a daughter, and he, he loves her. And once she's healed, he's on his way again. But in the meantime, something has happened. When he gets to Jairus' house, there's a bunch of people standing around there, and they say, listen, leave the guy alone. It's too late. She's dead. And Jesus says, yeah, she's not dead. She's just asleep. I am here to woke her. I'm like, oh, oh, now you've hit my nerve. Because 
that woke language is not working for me. And I hear the next generation talking about woke this and woke that, and it was just bothering me like crazy. And my friend says this. Yeah, he says, here's what I believe that the Lord prophetically is doing today. He says, what are we praying for? I said, we're praying for another awakening. He goes, yeah, what if God is intending to bring it to the next generation, the very thing that we've been praying for? And what if God is on his way to bring that awakening to the next generation, and he's already started seeding into their hearts language that they don't know what to do with, so they're looking at anything they can grasp a hold of that's different than what they already knew and call it being woke. And he goes, what if that awakening language is something that God's stirring in the hearts of the next generation because he's about to bring them a mighty revival and yet he's being detained because this generation has still got issues in their blood. Now I was really offended. Jesus comes to the house, and he goes, he goes, she's not dead, she's just asleep. What does the crowd around this dead little girl do? They start mocking Jesus. So the very first thing is he takes and moves all the mockers out of the room. Because listen, a spirit of mockery, which is alive and well in the body of Christ today, by the way, a spirit of mockery may not, may not keep you out of heaven, but it will keep you out of the room when God moves. So Jesus moves all the mockers out of the room, brings her parents in there because God honors family and a couple of disciples because he's raising up the next generation of revivalists. And he takes this little girl by the hands, this little girl arise. She gets up and the very first thing that Jesus says is this, give her something to eat. Because when revival comes to the next generation, the very first thing that needs to happen is they need to have fathers and mothers that'll teach them the word of God to get a root system deep into the word so that when the storms come, they won't topple. Because right now, I crisscross the United States and I come up against a, a disturbing amount of biblical illiteracy. It's as if the, the authority of the scriptures has been taken down. The deity of Christ is taken down. Jesus is just another way to God. Next thing you know, generations of Christians that are growing up underneath of us don't believe the Bible, and they don't think Jesus is the way to God, and yet they grew up in church. Something's gone seriously wrong. But God is bringing a revival to this next generation. He is bringing awakening. Think of it like this. When a person uses woke language, they're being vulnerable, really vulnerable. Because to say I'm awakening is to tell you that I'm moving from one state to another. I'm in a state of transition here. So whenever I hear woke language, what I'm hearing a young person say is, hey, I'm looking for an awakening. Is it here? Do you have it? Does your church have it? Does your message have it? Does the gospel have it? For me, the answer is absolutely yes, but I gotta start seeing with revelation eyes what God is saying, and he's speaking and seeding into this next generation so that rather than move with offense, I can start moving in faith and release a sound that releases the kingdom into their lives. And know what'll happen? Something inside of their spirit will leap when it hears truth. Yeah, not religion, truth. Mm-hmm. 
All right, Revelation chapter three and verse 20. And I wanna talk to you, just this last part tonight, about where exactly you belong in God. And in order to do this, I'm gonna need to borrow, can I borrow two of these gray chairs? Can, can one of you guys grab like, a couple of you guys, yeah, two of those gray chairs. Can I just get those up here? I'm gonna use this as an illustration. I, it, it's no good for me to preach a message if you can't repeat it. So, so everything I talked about last night and tonight is gonna be summed up in a couple of chairs. That'll make it easy for you to remember. All right, thanks. <clears throat> in Revelation chapter three, verse 20, Jesus says this. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if you hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in and we'll break bread and we'll dine together, right? That's his desire for us. In Revelation chapter four and verse one, John turns and says, and I beheld and I looked and I saw a door standing open in heaven. So there's a door on God's end, there's a door on our end. Guess which one's closed? The one on our end. Then the voice says to him, come up here. And suddenly John says, I was in the spirit. Which is interesting because John was already in the spirit. So what happened? He was in the spirit, in the spirit. Kind of like inception. Like how deep does this thing go, right? Like, I don't know. It's like, wow. So next thing you know, John finds himself in the throne room of God. And he's describing, throughout chapter four, he's describing the angels. They're saying, holy, holy, holy. God is sitting on the throne. They're saying, worthy, worthy are you, O God. And, and, and it's very clear. The entirety of chapter four is establishing this is the opening scene of the play, and God is the one on the throne. The next chapter, chapter five, God is literally holding a book in his right hand. It's closed, it's sealed with seven seals, and, and God's sitting there holding this book, and in Revelation 5, 2, the Bible says, a strong angel proclaims with a loud voice, who's worthy to open the book and break the seals? Verse 3 says, no one in heaven or on earth could be found worthy to open the book. Nobody. Nobody. Chapter 5, verse 4 says, John John goes and starts weeping. He's crying now. He's standing in the throne room of God, and he's watching something that is giving him this response. He just starts weeping. Why is John weeping? Because his theology is getting wrecked a little bit. Because I don't think John fully understands what he's seeing. See, John is actually involved in what the book of Revelation essentially is, is a living parable. It's a, it's a play of sorts. You say, a play? That's kind of weird. Here's the deal. The Bible says Jesus taught in parables, and without a parable, he did not teach. So when we look at Revelation, we're going, okay, we're trying to find everything that like lines up to this, lines up to that. But this is actually something that is going on for John's benefit that he's bringing back to us. And every time, this happens four times in the book of Revelation, every time John has a wrong response to what he's seeing, they stop the play and have to explain to John what's going on. It's kind of like, you ever have somebody, you know, that, a friend of yours that doesn't go to the movies very often, and you decide one night to take them out to the movies, and they're sitting there in the middle of the film, and suddenly it's just, everything's going wrong, and they start freaking out. My mom's in her 80s. She never goes to the movies. She goes to... Mozambique with Heidi Baker, but she didn't go to the movies. So I take her to the movies, and halfway through, she's like, oh, Bill, this is too much drama. I can't take this. And I have to, I have to stop and turn to her and go, Mom, look, relax. Trust me, I've seen this film. The end, just everything gets redeemed at the end. Just hang on. 
finish the story out. John doesn't get to the movies very often, right? He's been stuck on the Isle of Patmos, and now he finds himself in the throne room of God. He's looking at God, who's creator of all and worthy of everything, and now here's the problem. God is sitting on the throne holding a book he appears unworthy to open. And John's like, what? And he's weeping, and an elder standing next to him smacks him, that's my paraphrase, and says, knock it off, man. Essentially, this elder says to him, look, stop weeping. You can literally, you can literally be in the presence of God in the throne room and not have a clue as to what's going on and have a completely wrong response, okay? So John kind of is like, what? And the elder says, the lamb, or excuse me, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he's worthy to open the book, okay? And John's like, what, lion of the tribe? You mean Jesus? And he turns to see his best friend because John is the disciple that Jesus loved. Ironically, he's only ever called the disciple that Jesus loved in the Gospel of John. So, if you're writing your own book of the Bible, I guess you can be whatever you want, all right? So you see John's excited to turn to see Jesus, and instead of seeing a lion, he sees a lamb. Now John's kind of confused, because he's like, did they not know the difference up here? Let's see, what he's starting to realize is a couple of really important things that need to, need to get into our spirit in 2021 more now than ever. And I think this is the root of the awakening in the next generation is to grab this next truth. Jesus is the culmination, the prophetic culmination of the lion and the lamb laying down together. All of us want the the strength and the ferocity of the lion, but in Revelation, he shows up once as a lion and 10 times as a lamb. So you want the strength of the lion, you're gonna first have to embrace the gentle heart of the lamb, okay? Jesus shows up, and he's worthy to open the book as the lamb. What is the deal here, though, with God sitting on the throne holding a book he appears unworthy to open? And yet here comes Jesus, and he can open it. Well, listen, of course God's worthy to open the book. He's worthy of everything. But he's demonstrating the heart of any good father who's ever had a son that he loves. When my son was little, we would wrestle. And he would win, even though I was more than twice his size. Why? Because it was in my delight to watch the look on his face when he pinned his dad. I just thought that was so much fun. As a father, I didn't mind appearing weak to exalt the strength of my son. God's sitting there on the throne and he's holding a book. Oh no, who's worthy to open the book? Oh my, nobody is worthy. Oh look, here comes Jesus. What is he doing? He's saying to humanity for all time and eternity, I will not be God without my son. Just to let everybody know, just in case you forget humanity, my son is as much God as I am. And he and I are one. And he's not just a man. 
He's not just a teacher. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a healer. He's very God, a very God. People say, hey, hey, Bill, how many ways are there to God? Jesus is just one, right? No, he's the only one. He's the only one, right? But he didn't come to make it hard. He came to make it easy because every other self-proclaimed path to God tells you what you have to do to get to God. Only Jesus came to reveal what God did to get to you. There's only one path to God, and it's through Jesus. But can I tell you something beautiful? Jesus will travel down just about any road to get to you. There are a lot of paths to Jesus. The problem is, is these days I find that people have less and less of a faith in Jesus Christ to be their Lord and Savior, and they're trying to find some other way in other than by Christ, and they're working themselves to death trying when in fact, Jesus enters us into the rest of a reconciled union with the heart of the Father. That's that place of intimacy with the Father, is in Christ, in Christ alone. But the next thing you see is that Jesus and the Father are on a throne, and there's some declarations being made. All right, and I'm gonna take you guys through an exercise here. You don't have to move, it's a simple prophetic exercise. Here's how it's going to work. You just stay right where you are and close your eyes, all right? Now, with your eyes closed, I want you just to, just to use that childlike imagination that you had ever since you were a kid, and I want you to imagine the throne room of heaven. Whatever you've read or whatever you've been told about maybe be the thing that you start constructing in your mind. Maybe it's something that's huge, it's giant, Maybe the, you can you see the walls? I mean, what are they made of? Are they, are they glass? Are they diamond? Are they crystal? Are they blue? Are they gold? And, and that brings up another thing. What are you standing on? If you're in the throne room, if you, in your mind's eye, if you look down and see what you're standing on, you might think, okay, well, maybe it's gold, but I know the Bible says from under the throne comes a river, and it's like a sea of crystal, and one, one place goes on to talk about this this river actually being on fire. So there may be a whole lot of things that you're picturing that you're actually standing on if you're in the throne room of God, but here's the main piece of furniture I want you to see, and that is I want you to just in your mind's eye picture the throne of God. And for you, maybe it's, maybe it's huge, like, uh, like the Lincoln Memorial. Maybe it's even bigger than that. Is it stone? Is it marble? Is it diamond? Is it, is it so much light you can't even hardly look at it? Is it, is it up some steps? Because I think that's kind of a common idea. And then if you can picture God, if you can just allow yourself to just see God sitting on the throne, how does he appear to you just in your imagination, does he look old? Does he look young? Does he look timeless? And, and can you see his eyes? Is he, is he happy, joyful, sad, tired, filled with, with wonder? How is he appearing to you? Now, this is just something in your own imagination, I understand, but here's the question I have for you. Just one question. After all we've described and maybe what you're describing in your own imagination, I just want you just to answer this simple question in your own heart. 
in the throne room of God, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Some people might say, I'm, I'm on my knees before the throne. How many of you, that's you? Hands up. Okay, a lot of people. How many of you would say you're standing, maybe with your hands raised or not? How many of you say that's you, you're just standing there? Anybody looking around to see how many other people that you know are there? <laughs> I remember hearing somebody say one time, I'm outside the throne room. I can tell there's an opening to my left, and there's a lot going on in there, but I don't feel worthy to even be in there. All right, open your eyes. See, it's not enough for me to tell you where you are. I'm going to go ahead and let Jesus do it. I'm going to let Jesus tell you exactly where you belong in the throne room. You remember last night I quoted John 14, 20. In that day you will know I am in the Father, and you in me, and I am in you. John 17, Jesus says, Father, the glory that you've given me I give to them, that they may be one just like we are one. I in you, you in me, and I in them perfected in unity that the world may know that you sent me and loved them just like you loved me. See, his desire has always been to be so united with you that his divinity defines your humanity. His, the words, the promises spoken over his life, the declarations that heaven speaks over the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world become your inheritance. So I'm gonna let the Bible actually tell you where you actually are in the throne room of God. It's in Revelation chapter three and verse 21. We were right next door to it just a minute ago. And it simply says this, to him who overcomes... I will grant you to sit with me on my throne. Just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. In the throne room of God, this is where you belong. You literally are invited to sit on the throne with him. You're not just in a lawn chair next to the throne. You get your five minutes, and now you got to get out of the way because Drew's coming up or Crystal's coming up or Pastor's coming up. Yeah, it's, listen, that's not the way this thing works. The blood of Christ gave you an all-access backstage pass to the throne room of God, and you are invited literally to be seated with Christ. It's not a new doctrine. Paul figured this out a long time ago when he said, right now, present tense, you and I are seated in him in heavenly places, right? So let's go back to what I talked about last night, and this is where we come to the chairs. This is how you're gonna remember everything we've learned. God made man in his image and in his likeness, but man was born in a face-to-face -face encounter with God. They walked in the garden together in the cool of the day. They had an incredible relationship with one another. Then one day, man turned away from God. And we think, oh, God turned away from us. But he didn't. No, God came around and got in man's face and said, hey, 
I want relationship with you. We're going to establish something called a covenant. Man goes, seriously? You want relationship? Awesome. We'll do the covenant thing. A couple of generations go by. Man breaks the covenant. So God does this all over again, time after time after time, until finally he goes, that's enough of this. We're not doing this anymore. And God steps into our image in the form of Christ, looking so much like us, we can't tell him from the rest of us. Jesus steps into our story, and he starts doing amazing things, healing the sick, cleansing lepers, raising the dead. Do we love him? No, we kill him. This is what we do to our creator. But he doesn't go into the grave alone. No, he takes us with him. And he doesn't stay in the grave. He actually comes out of it and raises us up with him to newness of life. And here's where the disconnect happens. I get a workout every time I do this. The disconnect happens when we think we're just simply back to the garden. We're just trying to be in some sort of relationship with God, but there's still distance separation. So we think if God, if I'm turned away from God, then he turns away from me. This is the way it works. I turn toward him, he loves me. I turn away from him, he doesn't. So you get into a he loves me, he loves me not relationship with God, right? And then God takes on this form. This leads me to my least favorite Christmas song of all time. If you take the music out of it, it's just super creepy. You better watch out. You better not cry because I see you when you're sleeping. <laughs> when I was a little kid, I'd hear this song and I'd say to my mom, hey, What's up with the creepy old man that's watching me while I'm asleep? You want me to go over to Sears and sit on his lap? That's a hard no. That's a hard pass right there. This whole holiday is going dark for me. It's not Santa God who's watching everything you do. It's not the way it works. No, we're seated in him in heavenly places. This is your resurrected existence right there. This is what the new covenant looks like. So now if you, if you go to Revelation chapter 5, if you go to Revelation chapter 5, verse, hang on a second. Revelation chapter 5, starting in verse 9, they sang a new song. Pastor talked about this last night, singing a new song, and I love that. It says, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain, purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation, and have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Ruling and reigning. How do we do that? Got to have a throne to do that, guys. It's not your own throne. It's his. You rule and reign because you're seated with him in heavenly places. Here's the interesting part. In verse 10, it says, God has made us to be a kingdom. He's made us to be a kingdom. <laughs> when the disciples came to Jesus one day and they whined to him, saying, hey, teach us to pray like John did. Essentially saying, John's a better leader than you are because he's taught his disciples to pray. You haven't even taught us to pray yet. 
Imagine saying that to the Son of God. Step up, teach us to pray. So Jesus goes, okay, when you pray, say our Father. Those two words right there, by the way, we're gonna get him killed. Our, in other words, be inclusive, Father. Now, Jesus, who is calling God his Father, which is gonna get him crucified, is inviting all of us to say, our Father. Who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, and then Jesus teaches him to say this, thy kingdom come. But Revelation chapter five and verse 10 says that you are the kingdom. So do you see the clever thing that Jesus did in the first two lines of the Lord's Prayer? The first thing is he gave him two words that are gonna get him killed. The second thing he did was he got him cleverly to pray for themselves because you are the kingdom. Lord, let your kingdom come. Yeah, it's, it's you. It's in you. It's in your midst. You're the kingdom. Do you know that every time you're praying the Lord's Prayer, so clever of Jesus, he's so smart this way, he cleverly got us to pray for a revelation of our own identity. Every time you pray, let your kingdom come, you're saying let the truth of who you believe about me come to the surface and take preeminence over all of the lies and all the labels that I've believed about myself so that your glory would shine through me here in this earth. So we have no idea what we're saying when we say let your kingdom come because the Bible said he's made us to be the kingdom. And now in Revelation chapter five, verse 11, and I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and living creatures and elders and numbers and myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Stop. When Jesus got slain, where were you? Galatians 2.20. You got crucified with him. So now everything that's about to be declared over him is a revelation of your inheritance. This is not Jesus without you. This is Christ in you, the hope of glory, who has empowered you with enough authority to be able to go out and shape the course of world history just because he lives in you. You will never encounter a difficulty that you're not worthy to overcome because you're seated in heavenly places with him and carry the authority of heaven behind you. Hard to believe, isn't it? But it's true. And when you start to believe this, everything changes about how you engage this life. Worthy are you to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And if I had the time, I could go back and show you every place that Jesus actually released these things over people. Luke 9, 1 and Matthew 10, 1, he says to the disciples, I give you power and authority over devils, over demons, over sickness, over disease, to cast it out. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out devils, freely you've received, freely, you've, freely give, Matthew 10. Here's the thing, in, in Jesus' economy, he doesn't mind giving power and authority to unbelievers. You say, unbelievers? Yeah, he hadn't even gone to the cross yet. He hadn't even shed his blood. They hadn't even prayed the prayer we made up. And Jesus looks at this group of people who don't even know who he is and says, you know what? The stuff you saw me doing, the power, the authority, you get it. Now go. 
Have fun with that. If you don't think you're worthy to carry the glory, the power, the authority of God, take a look at the time that Jesus gave it to a bunch of unbelievers. And did you know what? Judas was actually in that group too. And if he would give it to them, he's certainly going to give it to you. We have not because we ask not. This is your inheritance. Now in verse 13, and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them, I heard them saying, listen, to him who sits on the throne and unto the lamb be, and where are you? Seated with him in heavenly places. Now everything being declared over him is a revelation of your inheritance. Be blessing and honor and glory and power forever and ever. How did God start his story with humanity? He gave you and I power. He gave you and I authority. He gave us the tools to steward the atmosphere. How does the story of the Bible end in Revelation? God gives it back to you and to me. But learning how to steward the sound in our blood is something we have not been good at for the last 2,000 years. And this is a challenge that I'm feeling for the body of Christ today is we gotta learn how to steward the sound of the kingdom in our blood, to release the spirit of God in a way that lets righteousness and peace and joy leak into the atmosphere so that mountains would move, so that the trees of the field would clap their hands, so that things that have gone wrong in the world would be set right. I think that there's things that are going on in this world that seem to be going out of control, and it's almost like they're bowling over the body of Christ. But the reality is, is every answer to every issue, every virus, every sin, every sickness, and every disease was in the drops of the blood of Jesus Christ that now flows through your veins. He's not interested in just pulling you out of here in an escape plan. He's actually caused you to be here for a time and a season, for a reason and for a purpose. You were born for more than just to pay bills and die. You were born for such a time as this. And for whatever reason, God's brought you together with the people that are around you now. And your assignment is to discover exactly what God has graced your life to do. But I can tell you this much. He wants to impact the world with his kingdom. And you know what? You're his plan A, and he doesn't have a plan B. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love watching your faces. This is just, a, you should see what I see right now. I'm seeing eyes that are looking at me like this. I knew I was born for a purpose. I knew I was born for something. I'm gonna go outside and go, what do I do? As I said this morning, unity is not when you agree with one another. It's when you're willing to lay your life down for somebody who doesn't agree with you, okay? We... We kick the kingdom of darkness in the teeth by walking in the unity of sacrificial compassion for people who don't agree with us. And here's what laying your life down looks like. Some, some people might say, laying your life down, does that mean that I, I, I become a martyr? I take a bullet for somebody? I step in front of a train for somebody? Hey, that's super extreme. And in some cases, rare cases, that might be the call. But here's what sacrificial compassion and unity looks like, laying down your life. It means that you give God permission to interrupt all your plans. And I think a lot of you have started doing this. You've probably been doing this for a while and don't even realize it. Suddenly you're going along one day and a name just drops into your heart. 
and you're thinking, I'm gonna stop everything right now, I'm gonna call or text this person. Boom, next thing you know, you call or text that person, they go, crazy, I was just thinking about you. And then they start pouring their heart out to you. Next thing you know, an hour later, you're ministering to them on the phone and you're bringing spirit and life and you brought encouragement to somebody's heart. You know, in a simple, small way, that's laying down your life to let the Lord begin to guide the moments in your day. And if you're willing to steward small moments like that, Lately, Tracy and I have had this weird thing happen. We're total strangers on airplanes, on the, happen on the way up here, in restaurants, we'll just come walking over to the table, waitress in a restaurant will just start pouring her heart out to us, and I'm sitting there with a bite of a hamburger in my mouth looking at her like, what are you doing right now? And then I realize, oh, there's something in her that recognizes something that we've spent some time stewarding, and now we have an opportunity to speak words of spirit and life over somebody in this moment. We do it on airplanes, we do it in restaurants, we do it as we just go through life. What is that? That's interrupting my agenda, my plan, my moments to just lay those things aside, to lay down my life, simple ways to release spirit and life and release the kingdom into the earth.